0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bob Hyatt. Uh, I'm on staff with Missio. My main role, however, is the Director of Equipping and Spiritual Formation for the Ecclesia Network, a relational network of churches and church plants that actually helped start Missio. So it's it's a pleasure to be with you today for this uh, forum. I have some very specific instructions. They include time limits and such. And I just want to apologize in advance to our speakers if I have to cut you off. The, the thing tells me to do that. But I'm also thinking that now as we're starting half an hour late and they've seen that they, there's a dinner in the back and I know that you can all smell it. I just have a feeling that no matter how great our presenters are, by the end of this we're all going to be a little cranky. So we are going gonna to keep things moving. Um, our, this is just a little explanation of what we are doing here this afternoon our conference forums are designed to provide an orienting space to the theme of the gathering the life of the church for the sake of the world by bringing the voices and perspectives of four diverse leaders together in conversation and in spending time listening to the questions and comments of fellow attendees these forums provide a sampling of the different ways the conference theme can be thought about engaged and teased out practically from a variety of leadership and contextual angles. So here are the two questions that our panel uh, members were given in advance to this time together. So I'm gonna read the two questions. I will introduce them. Actually, if you guys, if you don't mind, if you wanna come up, here are the two questions and then I will introduce our panelists. Uh, the two questions that they, they will be interacting with in seven to eight minutes a <laughs> piece. What do you see as one of the most significant challenges slash opportunities facing the North American church right now in terms of living more fully and faithfully into its God-ordained purposes in and for the sake of the world? You guys got that? (laughs) Well, they've seen it before. Yeah, okay. And then the second part is what sort of theological imagination must we have to grapple with must we have to grapple with that challenge slash opportunity and give us one example or story of how you have witnessed that theological imagination playing itself out on the ground? And I imagine uh, answering either or both of those questions would be fine. So each panelist has been asked to prepare a seven to eight minute uh, response to those questions. And with us today, we have uh, Reverend Dennis Edwards, who is the Associate Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Uh, I'm not going to read all the places where you earned a degree, that's, yeah. Uh, He has served as a pastor in urban context for three decades, including twice, yes, as a church planner, uh, Brooklyn, New York, and Washington, D.C., and twice working in established congregations in Washington, D.C. and Minneapolis, Minnesota. Married and four adult children, awesome. And then uh, Onia Okwobi, did I get it? Did I come close? Okay, we, she, she coached me beforehand because I was a little nervous, so thank you. I didn't want to mess that up. She is a P and I and tell me if this is out of date, a PhD candidate? Yes. yes, PhD candidate in sociology, studying race and religion at the Ohio State University. And along with her husband, she's the founding elder of, a twi- of 21st Century a Church Plant in Cincinnati, Ohio. And you know my friend Mandy? Yes, yes. all right, yeah, She's an uh, uh, awesome pastor and, and our co-host of the whole Missio Conference. She is the co-author of Multi-Ethnic Conversations, An Eight-Week Journey Toward Unity in Your Church. It's the first personal, devotional, and small group study on multi-ethnic life and church designed for people in the pews. And you can find her on transcendculture.com. And George Acevedo, I looked at a number of different um, bios of you, and they all said the same thing, so I figured this is what you wanted said. So... (laughs) Yep, yeah, it's it's short but sweet. George loves Jesus Christ and his church. Touched by the grace of God at seventeen, he was never the same. Rescued from a life of addictions, his greatest delight is connecting people to Jesus and the church. And George is the lead pastor at Grace Church, a multi site United Methodist congregation in and then I I I cut it off. It says Southwest. I'm thinking that Southwest Florida. Yes, there we go. And then, f- last but not least, Helen Lee. Helen Lee is the director of marketing at Intervarsity Press, where she previously served as an associate editor. She's the author of *The Missional Mom* and co-founder of *The Best* Christ- and co-founder of *The Best Christian Workplaces*. What is that? I'm, of best Christian workplaces. Okay, that's excellent. Yes. I wanted to know more, so I asked. I can do that, because I have the mic. Uh, Helen is also an award-winning writer and former editor at Christianity Today. She is married to pianist and Professor Brian Lee. They have three fast-growing sons and live in the Chicago area. All right. Anything else that that you guys would like to tell us that you feel like is important to know you or to get your context? (laughs) Alright, that's great. That is great. We'll get to know you a, a little bit as you speak. So, there is a, one microphone here, just right be, between you two, right there. And then I will hand off this one and maybe you guys can share that. So, uh, we're going to start with uh, seven to eight minutes of answering those questions. If you need me to, I can reread it, but I have a feeling you know what you're going to say. So, whoever would like to begin. All right, George, you're elected. <laughs> okay.
1: Go all right. Well, that's fine. Um, welcome. Uh, glad you all are here. So um, uh, we're a multi-site church, but I like to tell folks, don't think of, you know, North Point and Andy Stanley. We're clearly not that slick. Think of rehab addicts. Uh, we, we take over closing churches in neighborhoods that are typically underserved. Uh, they're down to 20 or 30 angry octogenarians, and we <laughs> seek to bring new life. And we've done that in three spaces now uh, and, and also have an original campus. And so uh, they're more like boutique you know, campuses of, of, of a church. Um, indigenous preachers who've been raised up, women and men who've been raised up from the life of our congregation who own our discipleship processes. So the, the, the second one that we did was a, a, the Central United Methodist Church That at one time had been a very vibrant church and like a lot of churches was on the tail end of its life cycle. And uh, I was invited there to speak the night that they were having the congregational vote. And uh, there were only two options on the table and one was to close and the other was to become a campus. So to die or to become a campus of our church. And uh, there were 30 people in worship on Sunday. There were 40 people at the vote on Monday. And uh, when we took the vote, which I was sure was going to be a 40 to nothing vote to become a campus, uh, it was 23 to 17. Uh, And so the swing was just a few votes, really. And I remember I was supposed to be happy, but I went out into the parking lot and I wept like a baby because there were 17 followers of Jesus that thought it was better to close than to have a future with hope. So if you were to ask me what I think is our greatest challenge, I think our greatest challenge is, is that we are faltering in our capacity to disciple people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm under the conviction that the gospel sells itself, uh, that it's at work in the world and it sells itself, if you will. Um, uh, but I think that this, this partnership that where we have to learn to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and the gift of Christian community of discipleship is I think where we're kind of uh, uh, waning a bit and uh, need some help. And the 23 years I've served in the church that I'm serving at right now, um, it's, uh, if I'm honest with you, I'm saying we still haven't figured it out. Mm -hmm. And we're still trying to figure out how is it that you make apprentices of Jesus? Mm I mean, how do we make fully devoted followers of Jesus? Um, One of the disciplines that we uh, champion in our church is daily Bible engagement. And we have kind of a three-tiered process for doing that. Um, And I... I'm in the what's considered the more seasoned process. Uh, you would hope that the pastor would be there, and it's and, and in it we read through the Old Testament once a year and the New Testament twice. And reading through the New Testament twice a year now for about 15 years, I've come up with a list. I have a list in, on my on a, on a on an app or on a on, a, on my phone uh, of what I call raw emotions of ministry. And one of them is uh, the Apostle Paul's heartbreaking desire for spiritual growth. And uh, Galatians 5.19, he says, I, Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains. Compares a deep desire to see people coming to know Christ. Ironically, a single guy uh, talked about giving birth, a single male talked about giving birth until Christ is developed in you. Uh, and uh, so last night I got a text from the first couple that I met in our church 23 years ago, whose son was my son's best friend, who was on our staff. Uh, And then went back to the marketplace to work and they're mad at us because the son went back to the marketplace and they're looking for a new church and they were my neighbors and we helped raise their son and they helped raise my son and I'm thinking to myself what is it about their our discipleship process that they're not able to process that their son is in a different space now than he was a few years ago and what I know is that that reflects our discipleship I mean I can point the fingers at them. But it's—I've been their pastor for 23 years, and we haven't cracked the code on this thing. So, I—I um, uh, I, I wouldn't want to. I mean, I'm real good at diagnosis. I'm not real good at at, at solutions. But I would—I did think about this a little bit. And so, for the probably 30 seconds I have left, I'll just share this. I think that there are two things that we're experimenting with, and one is um, moving from. Um, intuition to intentionality. Um, most of us lead out of strong intuition. Hey, that's a great leader. I'm going to pour into that person. But what does it mean for us to move from in- intuition, spirit-led intuition, into spirit-led intentionality about discipleship? Um, and uh, we haven't figured that out. We've got some systems we're working on uh, to do that, both for, um, both for ordinary followers of Jesus and, and then for those who are called to ministry. And then the other one, Um, is to, I think, is a a move uh, from attractional-only ministry to uh, this mixed ecology that that we're talking a lot about. Um, I I tweeted out to our people a few months ago, uh, what you do to attract them, you got to do to keep them. Um, I've now changed it. What you do to attract them, you got to do more to keep them. Um, And we've created this consumer discipleship, and I think um, we're going to have to... um, rid ourselves of that. I mean, 40% of millennials say, we ain't coming no matter how skinny your pastor's jeans are. Um, We're still not coming. So we've got to figure out a better way to disciple people than what we're currently doing. So I hope I'm under seven minutes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't want to steal what I'm going to talk about tomorrow morning. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it comes from, from uh, your tribe has taught me, it's, it's, uh, and y'all learned it from England. The, the, this whole idea of that the inherited church and these new uh, faces, spaces, and, uh, new places and spaces for new faces, uh, new ways to reach new peoples, um, new strategies, and tomorrow morning I'm going to talk a little bit in the plenary about some things we're learning uh, in that journey as we seek to live into this mixed, mixed economy. Multiple ways, yeah, yeah,
2: yep. Should we check the measurements on your jeans? Do you (laughs) qualify?
1: For a (laughs) fat guy. It's the fat, it's not the jeans. It's not the cut of the jeans. I promise they're not skinny.
2: Well, what I want to talk about in terms of an opportunity is it very much connects to what Lisa talked about in the previous session, which is a tyranny of low expectations and not being convinced of what the spirit can really do among us. So I've spent a lot of time in the multiracial, multi-ethnic church space, and one of the first scriptures that I came to understand when I, I came to the space was John 17, 20 through 23. And it always bears repeating, and even as I was reading it again this morning, um, I I was struck again by the power, so I just want to read it to you, and it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, so not just the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, which is all of us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And so looking at what, Jesus is praying in one of his last prayers and, and what is happening there. Jesus talks about the glory that has been given to us as believers, literally that we have been made partakers with the divine nature, with a so that, so that we could be one. And so that we could reflect this oneness, one in purpose, one in mind and in spirit, one body. All of these things is what Jesus' desire was. And when I look at the early church, I see starts towards that. I see um, them coming together in, in Acts chapter two and having everything in common. I've never been to a place, and I'm Pentecostal, I've never been to a place that preached Acts chapter two and then when they got to that part, they weren't like, well that part doesn't apply. <laughs> All the rest of it applies, but you don't have to give your stuff to anybody just so you're clear. I, I don't know why we do that. Um, And then you see, just a little bit later on, and you see the the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews getting into an argument about caring for the widows, and and the Hebraic Jews actually laid down their power and gave power to the Grecian Jews so that there would be equality, um, which was critical because you can't have the perfect unity Jesus talks about without equality. There's no um, unity when one person is up here and another person is there. And then, I I see the the treatment of women in the New Testament, and even as controversial as some of those scriptures are, you can see that the, the church wanted to be ahead of where the culture was. We're going to say women are no longer property, that women are are co-heirs and are are sharers in this gift of the Holy Spirit, that um, husbands, you love your wives, your wives are not your property, but they are people who who share in God's spirit with you. And then even going a a couple of centuries later, and I look at the the early church when an uh, epidemic hit the Roman world. And one-third of the populations of some towns died. And it was the, the Roman tradition that people, as soon as people started getting sick, the Romans would leave town and try to save themselves. But with Christians, it was not so. They would take care of each other so that more of them survived than the people who didn't believe in Jesus. And not only did they just take care of themselves, but they took care of the Romans as well who would let them. So while I don't see perfection at any point in this early church, I see a movement towards let's be one, let's display unity, and let's keep fighting for that unity. What I see in the church today is not so in the same way. What I see is a church that is actually more separated than the rest of the world around them. What a shock it was to me in 2005 when I first read Michael Emerson's Divided by Faith that came out five years earlier and realized that segregation in the church was driving segregation in other parts of society. What a a shock it was to me to discover that our local churches are 10 times more segregated than our neighborhoods and 20 times more segregated than the schools that surround them that instead of being the poster children for unity, that we have somehow become the poster children for division. And in this, I even want to problematize our solutions, because again, as I mentioned, I've worked with uh, multiracial churches uh, for quite some time, but uh, there's been a lot of angst in recent years about multiracial churches uh, falling apart as people come to discover that we're coming together but we're still not treated equally. That the, the racial structures, the, the structures of sexism, the, the structures of treating people who have better than treat people who have not have come right into the church and are keeping even our best efforts from wor- of worshiping together from occurring. And so my heart is how can we challenge each other not to say what we really want is multiracial churches, not what we really want is multi-class churches, but what we really want is the thing that Jesus prayed for us back in John 17. And what that looks like is us being integrated together and then us gaining insight into the needs of each other's culture and then us living sacrificially as one who would care for the dying, as one who would lay down your life completely, your safety, your comfort, etc., for the sake of this unity, so that the world would know. Because the world has no example of unity. Um, there's no institution that I've studied that has these uh, this equal playing field because the church was supposed to be that. So reclaiming our expectation of being that and living radically into that is is my hope and my heart for the church.
3: Wow, that that was awesome. Thank you. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to start with a, with an anecdote, and I don't mean to suggest that my own personal experience somehow is all of the North American problem with the church, but I do think somehow it typifies it. So, I was working at a church in D.C., not too far from here, and um, and as I started in in ministry, um, uh, I was to, I was called to serve a church that in Chocolate City was 90% uh, white. So, um, so I mean, I. I'm not stupid, so I figured, I, I figured out one reason why they hired me to be an associate there. And, uh, and as I got into my ministry there, I was invited to dinner by somebody in the church who had a lot of power, but not any particular official position, and, uh, and was agitated. that I was pushing for us to be uh, more racially inclusive, and he said... Um, <laughs> I'll never forget it. I mean, he said, look, my kids are too smart to be in the same Sunday school class with with, uh, city kids. Now, city kids was a euphemism. And um, (laughs) so, I mean, this started down a whole thing, but I think the problem wasn't so much that this guy had this view, you know? Um, It was that his view had traction because he's wealthy. Um, So there were people in the church who just uh, didn't really want to upset him, you know? Um as, as things would happen in a weird, quirky way, uh, the senior pastor left, and uh, they didn't know what to do with me. <clears throat> so I had, a, I had almost a year of being interim, and then I became the lead pastor, and that freaked some people out. So some people left, and uh, um, and then um, this particular, and I hired a woman to, um, to be uh, uh, in charge of our youth ministry, because that was a whole area that I don't have time to talk about, but that was an area that was also are challenged in terms of race. I mean, families in the church met and said the youth group has to be for just our kids, meaning white kids, right? I mean, not the, and they they use that name, that term, you know, neighborhood kids. Um, Of course, I lived in the neighborhood. My kids are African American. It created all kinds of problems for them to try to figure out how does the Edwards family fit into all of this. Um, So when I became the lead pastor that particular family, uh, that guy who had me over for dinner, Left And when he left, made a big deal about it and had a special meeting with the board of the church, of which I sat there for two hours hearing him uh, just blast how I want to make this church be, you know, racially inclusive. And he looked at me and said, and you know that's impossible. And and went on, he said, but I know you have to say that it can be done. And, you know, so we went through all of this and I thought, oh, Lord. I said, well, okay, maybe it's divine subtraction. It's good that he moves on. And uh, that's my term for that people moving on is divine subtraction. And so... um, (laughs) And um, <clears throat> but then um, but then the leadership was, you know, agitated and they thought, well, maybe Dennis is a problem for for those of us who live. And most of the church actually lived out here, out Arlington, Alexandria, even though the church was in D.C., mm-hmm. um, uh, people with kids anyway. And uh, so so all of a sudden in my my uh, my ministry there, though, it was attracting a lot of young adults who wanted to. Being a church that was more inclusive of people of different backgrounds, uh, some of the power brokers were really like Dennis. I don't; they couldn't see me continuing there, so I I resigned. And it was the same year that Dr. Emerson's book came out. In fact, I encouraged some people to, to read that book and uh, to try to understand what was happening. And uh, I mean, divided by faith, that book. Um, Uh, So this is my personal experience, but I have a lot of them, probably because I'm like the oldest one up here. So I got a lot of of these experiences, unfortunately. Um, But what what I'm in essence saying is that I'm agreeing with the messages that were given in the uh, sanctuary and with my colleagues here, that much of the problem that we're facing in North American church, I would interpret as a power problem. And our understanding of power impacts the type of disciples that we produce. Our our understandings of power um, create this nationalism that we see among a lot of Christians rather than rebuking it. It promotes distorted pictures of leadership so that we do get dictators rather than people who know how to build teams and consensus and how to get everybody involved with what uh, Dr. Fitch was talking about. So I, I I'm. I share this view that something has to be done, and so this, the sort of theological imagination that I think um, we can embrace would include different ways of looking at power, and I think that starts first with our perceptions of the gospel. I think missio folks get it, that, um, that the gospel is not, not merely the set of, of uh, propositions that we're supposed to uh, grasp hold of and then then pray a prayer, and then we're, then we're like good, right? And then you get the fire insurance. And you know, we've heard many, many ser- sermons about that. Yet even though we often critique it, that's pretty much our, our goal. I mean, I've been in a church, and uh, I have a, one of my uh, friends here, a colleague, my sister, uh, Pastor Rose. She knows that um, we would, there's sort of this pressure to have an altar call at the end because the altar call seems to be, that's the mark of success, right? If a lot of people come down an aisle, or if a lot of people respond in that moment, then you've succeeded, move on, right, to the next. And, and I'm always this guy that says, I, that, that well, maybe because I'm a one on the Enneagram. I, I is that, that emotional, <laughs> that emotional thing doesn't mean a whole lot to me. I wanna know where you are five years, 10 years, you know what I mean? So I'm thinking long, long, you know, the, the long game. But I do think that our presentation of the gospel needs to be a more jesus centered uh, jesus life it's not uh, the gospel's not just a good friday story it's not just an Easter story right It's a whole gospel story and um and you'll see more and more people writing and talking about that I'll I'll simply slip out a name the name uh, of um, uh, Michael Gorman he's written some books on the New Testament he has one called Becoming the Gospel, which I really appreciate and and part of what I'm trying to say is that many times our articulations of the gospel do come from particular Pauline passages, and I get it, Um, and we think mostly about um, penal substitution. We think things about a transaction. We think terms about uh, uh, that are about, um, you know, Jesus just came to die, and you hear those kinds of phrases, and we often miss out on looking at the life of Jesus and what what emulating that is supposed to be. I mean, somebody just tweeted yesterday um, that... um, People think being a Christian is emulating the life of Christ. They said, Christ is not a teacher, he was a rescuer. And, and my disappointment in that is that it just now bifurcates things, that, that's just not fair. I mean, he's all of those things teacher and rescuer, right? So that means I am to emulate Christ, and I'm to believe that his uh, death on the cross means something for me, but not just for me, for an us, for an us. So I want my definition of gospel to be more, more encompassing, to be more about uh, Jesus and not just about um, um, uh, my beliefs in doctrinal matters. Secondly, I think we need to shift some things in terms of the balance of uh, whose voices we listen to. I, I appreciate that this panel is all people of color. That's so rare for me to ever be in that kind of space. So I, my hat's off to Missio for that. Um, but it needs to be more normal. I did some work in First Peter, in fact, I wrote a whole commentary, and in First Peter, I, I argue that this diaspora position of, of the community becomes now a model for us. So people who have suffered, which is the community of First Peter, people who have been through, who, who have been alienated, become our teachers. When we look at First Peter, the people, that community are teaching us something. Am I getting past that? Oh my goodness, I thought for sure George was longer than I was. Okay, so, all right, so I'm done I said, I couldn't possibly be going as long as that. Thank you.
4: I kind (laughs) of want to hear the end of what he's going to say. Well, I feel like uh, the outlier to some extent because I'm sitting here with uh, renowned pastors and professors. So I'm more of an external, like, cultural observer, let's put it that way. So I think what I'll be talking about comes from that perspective, as someone who's more looking at the church and observing it and offering some observations. And I think what I'm also talking about also is symptomatic of all the things you all have expressed that I completely affirm and agree are, are issues. And so maybe what I'm gonna share now is a way it works itself out on, on the ground, so to speak. So let me start by telling you a story. Uh, Three years ago, a little over three years ago, I was at the Urbana Student Missions Conference, maybe if some of you have gone to Urbana, it's a huge conference that University Christian Fellowship puts on to inspire younger generations, college students to go into missions. I worked for University Varsity Press, and so I was there running the bookstore, selling books, et cetera, to students, but I would get to go to the plenaries in the evening, and one evening, I had the privilege of hearing Michelle Higgins speak. I don't know if you know Michelle Higgins. She's one of the three hosts of the Truth's Table podcast, which is Awesome, go listen if you haven't had a chance to. And uh, she was just giving a prophetic word <laughs> that night. Uh, what her message was encompassing this whole idea of uh, respecting the dignity of all people and how the church needs to do much more of that. We had the whole program that night was around this idea of Black Lives Matter. So the worship set was. Um, Constructed around that concept all the people on stage had black lives matter shirts and and Michelle was preaching uh, along those lines as well I just thought it was incredible. So I posted it later that night on my Facebook page as I'm prone to do um, About the way I felt about the whole night and how I was so so grateful for the chance for all these young people to hear this message Um, And then I went about my merry way and went on with my my work at the conference, and I didn't even know until the next day, so one of my colleagues came up to me and said, I'm really sorry about what's happening on your Facebook page. And I had no clue what they were talking about. I didn't have any notifications on at the time, so I I had no clue, so immediately I'm flipping my phone and I had alert after alert after alert, like a hundred alerts on my phone for a conversation that had been, had been happening on my page without my knowledge. So it turns out after I posted my praise of the evening program, uh, one of my friends, quote unquote friends, um, had lambasted InterVarsity for even putting anything along those lines on the program. They were very, very upset and other people came to the defense of university, and so there was this unbelievable, uh, acrimonious, contentious battle on my personal (laughs) Facebook page that I had had no knowledge of. And when I saw it, I I was just beyond disturbed and mortified. And what I was thinking about was, so in my group of friends, I have tons of people who are not believers. I have people I know from high school, people I know from college, who they are not followers of Jesus. And all the people who are engaging in this dialogue All Christians just fighting with one another, fighting with one another, cutting one another down, and no grace anywhere in that conversation. And so I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. Um, I think that that kind of mean-spirited, uncivil discourse has become commonplace, uh, unfortunately, in uh, in our sphere, in the public sphere. It used to be that when Christians were battling. folks in the public spaces, say 20, 30 years ago, it was Christians versus secular culture, right? Culture wars, right? That whole idea that somehow we Christians have to battle the world, kind of different from what we were hearing um, earlier today uh, of trying to heal and reconcile. Um, It was much more combative, the posture that Christians had in public spaces. But now it feels like Christians are battling one another way more than they are necessarily battling the world. There there are two watershed moments that I think about as being potentially game changers for the church and why we are in the place where I think that we're in now. The first was 2006. 2006 was the year that Facebook and Twitter became open to the general public to start using. And then 10 years after that, 2016. We, of course, had the presidential election. So between those two moments, we have 10 years where Christians were able to learn how to use social media for good or for ill, how to create audiences, develop audiences and platform, and it gave them time to train how to use these social media tools, and they discovered you know what? We have plenty of targets just in the church to aim at and to shoot at. We don't even have to bother with people outside the church. There's a lot of places within the church that we can, we can aim our barbs at. So what I feel like we have now in large quantity is what I will call disembodied discourse in the church, disembodied discourse. Any of us who use social media, I think all of us do up here and probably many of you, um, we can, any of us can catalyze a debate or a conversation, um, but we cannot control whether that conversation is healthy or toxic. And it just goes, <laughs> it just goes. It can explode without your knowledge. It can take over your your personal page in negative ways. Um, there's a plus side to social media that I wanna affirm because we've been talking about power and equity. And, and so I, on the plus side, I feel like what social media has given to many folks, particularly people of color, is an opportunity to express their voice and to raise issues where they haven't had the agency or the opportunity Um, or the the privilege to be able to to have uh, constructive ways to express themselves so there's it's not all bad so I'm not saying social media is all, all bad but it seems that somehow despite those gains there's been a lot more that's exponentially negative in terms of our collective discourse as the church and you know I mean it's not that Christians fighting Christians is new right that's that's been around since the beginning. We talked about that earlier too. I was um looking through I was reading through Philippians and I just stumbled upon that one verse in Philippians four two. It's Paul says, I plead with Iodia and, and Syntyche to, to be of the same mind, right? We, don't, we know nothing about these two women other than the fact that they're now immortalized in the biblical canon as having a fight that they couldn't get over. Um, but I just imagine, like poor Paul, Paul's in Rome, he's in prison, he's, he's trying to write this letter to this church he loves, the Philippian church, and in his mind, you know, miles and miles and miles across the Mediterranean Sea are these two women who can't get along. And it is burdening him because he knows that the impact of that disagreement, that conflict, is that the witness of the church is hampered. The mission of the church is hampered. And that's why he cares so, so much. So the problem is not that we have conflict because we're always going to have conflict as individuals, as people, um, especially as we try to embrace more and more diversity in the church. Of course, we're not always going to agree, but how do we work through those disagreements? And the problem is so many of these conversations now are happening in virtual spaces where there's not a foundation of relationship. There's not a foundation of relationship. So I'm not gonna have time to get into the Solutions, but I'll say one more thing, which is I do think that this is where the opportunity for the local church is. It's to create places for healthy, gracious, loving conversations, embodied conversations, rooted in real relationships, where people can learn there's an actual healthy way to disagree, there's a healthy way to have conflict, but it feels like we as a local church haven't quite figured out how to teach the people in the pews, how to do that. And I think once we do a better job at that, that will hopefully spill over into how we conduct ourselves in virtual spaces.
0: Thank you panelists, very thought-provoking. Good stuff. We are gonna enter a time where we do have some interaction. And the way that we're going to um, start that off is just by giving us uh, about a minute And during that minute or two minutes, let's call it two, uh, the panelists get to think of a question that they would like to ask somebody else on the panel. Right? You all, this is where the introverts in the room get a little squirmy, you all get to turn to one or two people and just uh, ask, what did you hear that really intrigued you or that you wish more was said about? And out of that, those questions of what did, what did you hear that really intrigued you? Or what do you wish more was said about? I want you to just begin forming your questions for the panel after they have uh, asked each other. Uh, we'll have a time where you all are able to ask your questions of them. So we'll just, I'm just gonna put a, a minute or two on the clock and talk to one another for a minute. You guys put on your thinking caps and yeah.
3: Um, a lot of stuff. stuff I think. Yeah. Do you have a that said participants can be part Is it in Is it right that, That's the venue that dinner. they're doing? That's what I was hoping. I yeah. didn't have to go find it. No. Okay. That's, it don't it. <laughs> no. Yes, that's good. That's good. First people on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true. Right? That's good. Okay. Mm. Mm. Thanks. Yeah, I got it. Thanks. It's funny. This has become like my iPad because it's a bigger screen and my iPad got slow. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to break it. So, let me tell you. I think I know what I want to ask. So,
2: a lot way to directions. A to, like, you know. That's
0: funny too. I'll figure out. So just about 30 more seconds. All right, so panelists, this, this portion of our time is, is meant to be about 15 minutes, so hopefully we'll get a chance for everyone to ask a question, but that really depends on you, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So uh, I'm going to hand the mic over for you two, and then uh, whoever would like to ask first. Uh, or do I have to make George I, go, like, no, Dennis? I'll go first, because okay. I
3: have a qu- question, and it's hopefully won't take long, but it's for you. And um, so you mentioned Ohio State, so I asked you if you knew Corey Edwards, you said she's your advisor or director. Uh-huh. So she wrote this book, um, uh, The Elusive Dream, which I read back when I was trying to plan a church multicultural. And so, so she talks about, even in multicultural church with, mm-hmm. with people of color and leadership, the church mm-hmm. still becomes white. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you what you think about that, mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of leadership, and what is the hope for a multicultural uh,
2: church? Mm -hmm. Great question, and anytime I get to plug my advisor, I'm sure I get brownie points somewhere. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, basically what uh, Dr. Edwards did is she did an ethnographic study where she spent 18 months at this church that had a black pastor, and 60% of the congregation was black. Um, and said, how do the dynamics of race play out in this space? And what she found over and over again is that um, the pastor was not able to exercise the prerogatives of his leadership And that um, white congregants who disagreed probably not just by virtue of race but by virtue of um, having a different um, background won out in any disputes they had in the church over, um, say, expressiveness of worship was one example. And so she came to the conclusion that multiracial churches persist to the extent that they're comfortable places for whites to worship. And we have seen this play out, that when we are able to bring together a multiracial church, it's already very rare. It's already less than 20% of churches, even though it has by the grace of God, expanded so much um, since the year 2000 when it was less than 7% of churches were multiracial. But when it happens, we do still see this power imbalance happening in the church, which is why um, I'm at the point where we can say it's not enough to just come together. We must be focused on this issue of equity. And so sadly, I think her research was is very true. Um, and even as we've done another project Um, where we got to study 120 multiracial churches around the country. We're not seeing anything different in those 120 churches than we saw in the one church. Um, But I think part of the solution to that is, again, being able to um, look back at what the standard is. The standard is not... Uh, university diversity training or business diversity training or toleration of each other the standard is when we lay down our lives for each other like Jesus did for the church and our entire goal is that we would have completely equitable relationships amongst each other and being able to examine those things and so I think to the extent that we can help people understand that these systems are operating um, maybe we can be empowered by Holy Spirit to tear them down.
3: Amen, thank you, thank you, awesome.
2: wow. So I have a question
1: for Dennis. Yes. So uh, I'm Puerto Rican, and I pastor in Robert E. Lee County,
3: oh. Florida. Oh, man. Right. For 23 years. Tear
1: <laughs> yeah. um, down, um, I'm just kidding. At one point, <laughs> the second most segregated city in America, or segregated county in America. Uh, and have enjoyed a fruitful ministry there um, our church is filled with people who are in recovery tons of people in recovery I, I myself am recovered from drugs and alcohol um, lots of conversation uh, in the evangelical church around being multi-ethnic multicultural yeah. churches yeah. the conversation I don't hear happening okay. and that we're experimenting with at our place mm-hmm. is that my observation I'm not a I'm not a PhD. uh, I barely graduated from seminary. Uh, My observation is that the real divide in my county is socioeconomic and lifestyle as much as it is race. That poor white folk, poor brown folk, poor black folk typically figure out ways in their communities to work together. Um... And that people in recovery, uh, watching the recovery community, they know how to take care of one another. And they, they don't care if you're green. I mean, they, no. just, they just don't care. Um, there's a commonness. So there's a lifestyle. Um, what part do you think, Dennis, yeah. does lifestyle and socioeconomics, placing race aside for just a moment,
5: yeah.
1: and again, the four of us are pretty diverse, uh, placing race aside for a moment, what, what what part does that play
3: in the life of the church and how we can address that? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer quickly, but I, I, uh, I'm not a sociologist, so I'll say that I would actually probably give that question to you as well as a soci- sociologist, but I can't, I can't separate race from, from, uh, from uh, economic realities. I, I just can't. I think they're too intertwined in American history and culture. So I will say, though, that having money – does mitigate some of the problems associated with, with racism, right? I mean, I get to come here and be part of this because I have some access to money to get me from the Chicago Metro to get here. So there are ways that, that economics certainly mitigate some of the problems of race, but I think they're too intertwined. I would say, though, that there's um, that reality that, that finances can mitigate, to me, says that, we, um, th- that the church uh, part of its multiculturalism is to, it maybe, if I'm, I'm not a sociologist, but maybe culture also includes um, how people deal with finances and money. So when I say multicultural, for me, when I planted a church in D.C. and in New York, that was it was about money, economics, as well as race. So we would say, back then, it's a long time ago, we said race, class, culture is the way we said it, which is probably, I would may change those words now, but... But they, they, they work together, I, I would say. I, I can't separate, I see they working in concert. But I do think there's a, a reality there, potential for growth, um, when, we, when we have people of, of similar economic means, so. Another
4: question. Wow, oh my gosh, my brain, my brain is spinning. I'm not sure who this question is for, I'll just ask it. <laughs> so. We're, we're talking about such, real, such profound um, topics, power and equity and uh, reconciliation. I guess my question is this, and I'm trying to work it out how to even ask it in any kind of coherent manner. But um, if, is equity enough? And I guess my question is, we're hearing a lot about reparations, right? In the larger, larger broader conversation about race. Is, is equity enough? Or maybe is equality enough? I guess we would say equity is, is, is the right, Direction. In our journey to get there, churches are still trying to even just reach equality. <laughs> um, and I guess I'm wondering is, is there a place for reparations in the church? What I mean by that is, is it enough to just have a representative from a particular ethnic group on your pastoral staff? Or is, is, it, is more required to enable power shifts to actually happen, to enable cultural shifts to actually happen, to, to actually see change because you're saying that even though there is some diversity it's not enough so what is the tipping point that prompts and catalyzes true change
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad i'm asking the question not answering the question (laughs) yeah and this is i mean it 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 sounds self-serving because it relates to what I, i mean i i just don't know that we've figured that we've cracked the code on how to make apprentices of Jesus. Yeah. I know that sounds simplistic, I mean, but I'm a pastor of a local church. I mean, that's mm-hmm. all I've ever wanted. To, that's all I felt called to do and to be. Mm-hmm. And in the local church, I, I think when, when people have their hearts uh, uh, captured by Jesus, mm-hmm. um, uh, these issues of race and class and gender and mm-hmm. uh, these other divides that we have, um, uh, they they seem to my observation has been in 41 years as following Jesus and about 30 years of being a pastor is that is that people get there and they 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 live in that space and the, as they begin to lead in those spaces it it reflects that I I I, uh, I grew up in a very male chauvinistic environment as a Latino um, uh, we have seven pastors on our staff and four of them are women and, and three of them are, are men and. And, and 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 we didn't set out to do that. It's just been an outgrowth of the kingdom in our environment. So um I, I think in my tribe, in my Wesleyan tribe, we, we we're you know, we're really good at trying to say we've got to have one of these and one of these and one of these. And I've said uh as as I run around trying to persecute my church, uh I, I've said that um uh that uh, when you aim for diversity, you typically miss it. But when you aim for the kingdom, you typically become diverse. And I think that has to do with our disciple our making. And um, I don't know that, I mean, as you, as I think as you read the New Testament letters, it appears that, th- that this unity was an outgrowth of, of their learning to abide in Jesus and walk in the spirit. The very themes that Jesus and Paul talked of.
2: Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more that um, unity is very much a discipleship issue, and maybe one that is, maybe because we struggle with discipleship more generally, it's one that doesn't yeah. always get taught. Um, and I just I would just add to that, if I, if I had to measure and say, yes, the church has achieved it, I would look for things like, do we have an equal sharing of power? And that's not just putting a person in a role, but are they actually able to do their job the way anybody else in that job would be able to do it. When we look at the congregation, when people have friendships, are those friendships the same, uh, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, or are some friendships, token friendships, so I can say that I have an Asian American friend, and other friendships are your real friends that you do things with outside of church. Uh, we see that. <laughs> when we have sharing of resources and sharing of job recommendations and other forms of, of capital, does that happen equally across all lines? When I have to choose what neighborhood to move in and what school to put my kids in, is it with the other people who go to my church um, regardless of what status they fall in? So. Um, I think, as a sociologist, I would find ways to measure it, and I would say, we haven't seen it yet, (laughs) but I'm hoping to see it. And I wanted to, since I have the mic now, I wanted to ask you a question, Helen. I am curious about, um, you know, this idea that now Christians just fight with each other. And I wonder if you think that has anything to do with uh, us being in these echo chambers where we've stopped having in our social circles people who aren't Christians. And so there's no discourse or dialogue, the fact that you have so many friends who are outside of the church is critically important, but it's not always something that we aspire to. Can you speak to that a little bit? I
4: do think there's actually even research out there that shows the way, for Facebook in particular, or the way the algorithm, algorithms work for your feed. You basically are reinforcing seeing the same people. things, People who like the things you post are the people who you will see most often, right? It, that's kind of the way that particular medium works because then you'll enjoy seeing that that kind of feedback and then you will continue to like their stuff and there is that process that's actually built into the software that provokes that exact dynamic from happening. Uh, it, it exactly reinforces that dynamic where we are essentially just For the most part, seeing the people who agree with us all the time. And you have to work really, really hard. You have to be very intentional to make sure you are engaging with people who think radically differently, whether in the church or outside of the church. So I do think that social media has absolutely, absolutely catalyzed that dynamic. Because before... Sure, there were people who probably thought exactly the same way as you did on particular social issues, political issues, theological issues. But there was no way for you to find them easily so that you could reinforce your own beliefs with the people who agree with you. and now it's it's the way we are our our minds are formed. our opinions are formed often, and uh, the way that our own opinions are reinforced because we see people, on our feed, who think like us. And then it becomes very jarring when you see someone who thinks differently. <laughs> it starts to feel like, oh my goodness, you know, how did you get into my, my friend's <laughs> list? Where, where did you come from? Um, I'll tell a quick story. Actually, that initial story I told about that fight that happened on my Facebook page, my instant reaction, and I'm not, I'm not proud of this, is that I, I blocked that particular person. Um, because I just thought, you can't come onto my page and cause this kind of havoc and, and not even you know, ask me for permission on my page to do that. So I blocked him. And, uh, and actually, <laughs> thinking about this event, talking about what we're talking about right now, I had serious conviction about that. And I thought that was not the, the right way to go about it. So I reached out to him, actually. And I said, do you remember that incident three years ago when I blocked you? I don't actually even think he realized I blocked him. But in any case, I blocked you. I here's why. I'm really sorry about that. You know, I wish that we had had a chance to have a conversation about that. So we've had a bit of a reconciliation moment myself and this particular person. But it, it, you know, but our instant thought is not to do that. All right, our instant thought is just to get rid of anybody who doesn't agree with us, and that doesn't provoke or that doesn't inspire reconciliation in the end.
0: Invite your questions. Thank you so much. Uh, and we have about uh, twenty minutes, and then we'll wrap up. So, what kinds of things are you wondering? What did you want to hear more about? What really provoked you that uh, gave you a follow-up question? Yeah.
1: This is for any or any or all of you. Um, you guys all spoke about equitable equitable power in the church. Um, can you touch on? What that looks like in your from your perspective,
3: um, and how as a church we can be better at that. I, I'm I'm going to jump in um, and try to take a stab. I think uh, for me, I'll start you know just personally, but uh, that it means that I I I want to listen to my sisters. So I want to be in a place where I am receiving. Um, uh, uh, direction, uh, help, guidance—I'm helping to be. I'm, I'm being formed and shaped because I'm a guy, and I want and I want that, and I need it. I think uh, it also means that for people of uh, for white people, and this has been maybe hard for me to say it out loud. I want to write it and something, but I think white people need to be in places where they they are receiving from people who aren't white and are learning how to defer and 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 take leadership and direction. And, uh, and part of that phenomenon an elusive dream is that white people were still wielding power even if they didn't have an official position. I've experienced that way too much in my life. So I wanna see, I wanna see people actually learn how to defer to people who don't look like them, but particularly white people. I mean, so that's my start at it.
0: All right, and other questions, here we go.
6: Donna L. White, I lead a multi-ethnic uh, congregation in Ann Arbor. Uh, Dennis, I wanna start by saying thank you so very much for the way you uh, refused to break race out of that. I, I really appreciate it. Helen, if it's okay, um, I would love to hear um, a little bit more about the pain that the person of color has to endure in order to create the reconciliation. So um, it, it seems to me, and I've been at this for 20 years, that the, in order to move the needle, um, and, and Dr. Edwards, story, um, her study just came out, there was another paper that she just published with the 120 pastors where you know she just talks about the pain that the pastors of color, both Asian and African-American, have to endure in order to lead. And so it becomes easier to say, that's too much. And so I would just love for you to talk about why all of the pain has to be centered in the uh, in the oppressed. Why is it that the oppressed has to speak first? Why is it that the oppressed has to uh, endure the pain in order for this reconciliation to occur?
4: Ooh. We only have how many minutes? <laughs> I don't, so, Earlier when, um, in the session, the large group session, I can't remember the name of the pastor, when he was talking about that whole process of, of blindness to sight, right? There has to be some sort of catalyst. Because <laughs> sometimes the people who are blind don't know they're blind, right? There has to be someone who makes it clear that that blindness is there. And I, I do feel like often that mantle rests on the shoulders of people of color it is not an easy mantle by any means. And um, it is painful and it is super hard, especially if you are that person of color in that white dominated space where you can see things where that no one else can see your choices are you either kind of coexist and don't say anything and then change probably does not ever occur or you do have to embrace that moment or those moments where you resist, you raise, you cause a stir, you stir the pot, and then there are all the repercussions that come from that whole experience. I don't know why. I mean, the, the answer to the why question, I'm not sure I can give you. I just know that it is a, it's is—it's a reality for people of color in those spaces to have to be willing to take that on. And if, they, if we don't, what happens is that there is the representation of the person of color at the table, but then not the challenge, which makes the culture think, or that organization think, or that church think, everything is fine. We have a person of color on staff, we're doing fine. Um, But then the issues are never addressed. Um, I think it helps when you have people who are in the dominant culture who see that something needs to be said and actually takes initiative to catalyze that conversation, but it takes pretty self-aware, pretty woke white folks to do that. And I think a lot of folks are still on that journey of learning and understanding and being able to see, like they have to have an awakening, right? In order to be able to see what those who are people of color see. So I don't know if I can answer the why. I just know that what you're saying is is a reality. And I think to name it's a reality, to make sure that people are aware this is a reality for those people who are in the minority in your spaces and places, this is what they're contending with. Be aware and help them. <laughs> give them a voice, give them support. Ask them what is, what is it that they're seeing that you're not seeing, take initiative. So it would be great to see more of that dynamic happening. I don't know if I've answered your question though.
0: I'm gonna come over here. You
7: got a question? Yeah. I think I'm not sure if it's more so of a, of a question or more of a statement in relates to your question. If I'm hearing you right, it was why do you oftentimes a minority have to bear that stress of doing it? From, from doing this for the last 14 years of our life and from counseling minorities, I would have to venture, this is just from practical experience, they don't have to bear that because it's a burden on their soul and it's a burden on their families. I have counseled many minority men who have been in a hospital from working in all white environments, who have been, brother, what happened to you at that church? I'm so sorry that you have to experience that. Um, They should not have to bear that burden. And it's not their burden to bury at all. There's no need for black people to be so, desperate for, for that unity that they, they, they bear more pain for something or any minority that they're going through. That's number one point. The number two is there needs to be a national shift in the multi-ethnic movement. There's been a hijacking. It has never been about black people worshiping in white spaces. It's been about biblically, all people worshiping in all spaces. And when we make it about black people worshipping, or when we make it about some people worshipping in some spaces, then now it's creating an undue burden to the black community because from the economic point of view, white churches have more money. So now you can go into the black church and just steal that young musician that's been groomed from that black church and you can now hire him on staff at that white church and you're breaking generational lines? The black dollar, there's an economic piece to this. Generally, white people don't follow black people. And so until nationally, those who are in the multi-ethnic movement, I think there needs to be a shift and there needs to be a prerequisite for non-minorities to get involved and that must be you serve under black leadership. But you just can't get in it and then start calling the shots for this movement. It's never been about blacks worshiping in white spaces, it's about all people worshiping in all spaces and the reality of it by and large in America, the data proves that white people are not coming and joining minorities, they're just not. And so until we start speaking that truth in a loving awareness but not in a point to hurt to ridicule, but to work with one another. Do we switch congregants for a season? H- how do we really do this in an equitable way where we're not making our brothers and sisters who are white feel bad for, for, for the structures that we've all lived in, but the solution is not more black people be experiment in white spaces, because I've seen the danger of it. I've counseled families. I've. It's just, it's rough. So my whole point is, the multi-ethnic movement is about all people worshiping in all spaces. And there needs to be a shift to call people to say, how do we worship in other spaces? So, sorry if that was wrong. I was gonna come up here and
0: then maybe over here, or is there any response? Anything anyone
4: feels no, led like to say? No, I think what you said is, I, I hear the truth from that. I think that there's, how, how do I put this? I feel like there's, a, there's various calls for various people and to the extent that, like when I think about conversations I'm having with my fellow Asian American sisters, it's it's a, it's a bit of, okay, whose turn is it this week <laughs> to bear the burden, right? And maybe you're right. It's possible that maybe we can just need to get out completely. But And I have friends who do that. Like I have friends who can't do it anymore. Like they can't be in white centered spaces anymore. And they have to go. And I completely understand that. And I would never ever say to any one of those friends, whether they're Asian American or any other ethnic or racial group, no, you have to stay. I think that there's a there's a it's a it's call if you feel called to stay. By no means should anyone feel forced to stay. So I'm, I completely agree with that. But if none of us stay <laughs> in the white centered spaces, what happens then? So this is a dialogue I th- I'm having with lots of my friends of color of whose turn is it this time to bear the burden? Or should we just get out? Or should we create completely new spaces. And I think that's kind of where you're going, which I, I love that vision a lot, because you're right, there's something embedded in the systems and structures of so many of our churches and organizations that it would be hard potentially to tip the needle backwards. So maybe it's about creating
5: new spaces. Hey, so my name is Stephanie, and I'm with InterVarsity on campus staff. And I joined, I started doing campus work a little bit after Urbana 15, so I wasn't there for the talk that you you mentioned. um, But I did listen to it later because all of my donors were talking about it. Um, So I'm a white person and I had a lot of white donors and I have quite a few less since the 2016 election. And so I'd like to talk to you about social media, especially Helen, but also would be curious for other people's insight, maybe even in this room. When the election happened, I was really angry and upset with a lot of white people and with a lot of my donors and the church background that I came from, and um, I wasn't silent about it on social media. And maybe some of the things that I posted were unwise or not particularly godly, and maybe some of you would even be offended by one of those posts, Um, but I think that some of them might have been, or I hope that some of them might have been, Um, and I didn't post them to to anger my white donors. Um, I posted them uh, not because I wanted to make them feel uncomfortable, but I posted them because I wanted to be clear and because I wanted my friends of color and immigrant friends to know that they weren't alone. Um, So after losing quite a number of donors um, and having to reduce my hours on campus staff, my supervisor, who is a white male, suggested that maybe I should take it easy on the social media and I was kind of flabbergasted and I wondered if he were supervising people of color would he have given them that advice as well and I felt like I was being asked to tap into my privilege to protect myself um, on things that I thought were true and I wasn't in the mood to comfort white people at this time because I was angry and because I don't think that we're actually usually asked to comfort people who are in power and have privilege so I would just really like to hear um, what you all think about that. And, um, and especially in light of the comment that social media is a disembodied um, place, I forget how you phrased it, disembodied discourse. That's what it was, it was a really great phrase. Um, and so I think that you know, I've grown in recognition that that's not a good place to have conversations, but I've also been um, unsure of whether silence in that space is also the right choice.
3: What if you guys can go first
4: <laughs> I completely agree with the idea that that silence is in some ways uh, an accommodation that we are called to speak when we're called to speak, so this is oh it gets into tricky waters um when you're talking about donors and your livelihood, and that's tricky. I'm not going to be able to give you an answer that's like one size fits all but but there is something about, uh, about, uh, about silence that makes you complicit in the systems and structures and injustices that are in this world. So, so I would never say to someone, don't, you know, don't say anything, be silent if you feel a conviction about something. But this gets tricky, right? Because then for you, there was a material impact. Um, and then now you have your boss coming and telling you, you shouldn't have done so much posting because of your donations going down. Wow, That's, that is so, so hard. I, I'm not sure I have an easy answer for you. Um, if I had to try to get down to the root of your question, I think you're, you're asking, you know, what do I do with the fact that I have what I feel like are God-given convictions to speak, uh, even though it might have an impact on my ministry, I think that's kind of, is that the crux of what you're, where you're going? And how do we use social media in those instances in wise, in wise ways? So, gosh, this is not an easy thing to, to tease out, but can social media be used for good, to be prophetic and to speak truth and to, uh, offer opinions that need to be said? Absolutely. Absolutely. For me, during that time right after the, after the election, I felt like it was really important for me to be saying things that clearly identified myself as a Christian, but one that was not supporting Trump. Like I felt like all the media was very much evangelicals. Evangelicals are doing this in the 81%. And I wanted to make sure that my universe of friends knew that that didn't include me, particularly my, my non-believing friends. So... That's how I kind of approached it, you know, for me. And that's where it gets tricky because it's not gonna be the same for each one of us. Each one of us is gonna have a different set of friends and networks, and in your case, donors, which makes it super, super hard. But I feel like if you feel that conviction of, of God's truth in you to speak, even if it potentially angers your donors, it's hard not to listen to that spirit of truth saying, "I have to, I have to stand with my immigrant neighbor. I have to stand with the refugees in my neighborhood." I mean, it's how can you not listen to that call? And and you've experienced the cost of that, which I'm so sorry that you experienced the cost of that. I don't have any easy solutions. I'm wondering if any of my wise friends to the right here can interject and save me from my floundering. Going to say something, Joe? I I, I mean.
1: I'm a local church pastor with red state, blue state people. And, and so I, I wrestle with this all the time myself. Uh, um, and, and for me, uh, my donors aren't somebody that's out there. It's somebody I'm going to serve communion to on Sunday. I mean, or, or they're going to be in board meeting on, on Tuesday. Um, I think we have to allow scripture to help us. Uh, I listened to a John Ortberg sermon on James uh, yesterday about on my way to Orlando to see my parents, slow to speak. Uh, quick to listen slow to speak, slow to anger um and um you know i mean i I, I do think there's some wisdom i I think we have to um you know the, the, the n t Wright, uh when he writes about um uh he writes about the clash between conscience and charity and that we that we can't allow even charity to to trump probably wrong word to use uh <laughs> our sense of charity, uh, or our sense of conscience. Um, I I have to wonder the wisdom of the platform. That's the question I wonder, is the wisdom of the platform. Um, Because we have no control, I mean, you're just posting a great spiritual experience you have and a dumpster fire blows up on your Facebook page while you're just doing your job, not your intent. You, you know, and I don't think any of us can, and I do think that that's the hard part of navigating social media. Uh, I can say in church, I can use the word Trump, which I used long before the guy got elected. Uh, you know, Jesus is triumphant, and it's a word we use a lot, and, uh, and I can't even use that word in church anymore. And uh, um, so, you know, I, I don't know i don't I don't know there there's a, a place for the prophetic word uh, I just I think I, I wonder the wisdom of the platform where, where it's where it becomes out of control and I, I I would rather err on the side of charity when it comes to that sort of thing um, and um, I tried to create a space through throughout any of the elections I've been 23 years in the same church um, and so I've tried to create a space um, that says this space is nonpartisan, and here, so that when the guy was wearing the Obama pin and was greeting people at the door, I said, "You either take the pin off, or you, or you give somebody else your job." And the same thing to the Trump guy. You either you know take the pin off, or we're going to replace you. I mean, it's I'm, here we don't do that. Um, there may be some other spaces. But, you know, coming into church on Sunday morning is not where we do that. So, uh, and, but again, I I can't fault my sisters and brothers for whom the prophetic word, uh, it has to go there. I don't know. The whisper of the Spirit may be the simple answer. I don't know.
0: All right. We we have time for, we have time for one more.
5: So my question is for you, Pastor um, Acevedo, about the discipleship program that you have. Because we're looking at discipleship at our church, and... I'd like to hear a little bit more if you could talk a little bit about your discipleship. Sure. Uh, I, I come out of
1: the Wesleyan tradition. And uh, if Father John was good at anything, it was at creating spaces that, um, uh, that accomplished what he saw as a theological goal. So they had this, you know, he was kind of this parachurch thing that he was doing with the poor and people on the margins. And he did these Thursday night United Societies, these spaces for pre-Christian people to gather. Um, and then when they were ready, uh, the word was, you had a, you had a desire to fe- fear the wrath to come. They moved into a second space, which was their class meetings, which was more like a multi-mixed uh, 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 gender group, Bible study-ish conversation play- piece. And then once people came to faith in those groups, they moved them into these bands, Um he put pinks with pinks and blues with blues, a high commitment. Um, first question they asked every week was, what have you done this week to alleviate the suffering of the poor? And how is it with your soul? Uh, and so, the, the, you know, there was a kind of an inward holiness, outward holiness kind of thing. So we've tried to sit, figure out what does that mean in our theological stream to create those spaces of, of where pre-Christian people can have conversations that are safe and, and then other spaces that are to help people take next steps. Um, and we're experimenting with it. Um, we're, we haven't figured out this whole thing around uh, we're, we're deeply engaged with the poor because our congregation is very blue-collar and working class and working poor. So, um, you know, it it's creating these spaces for that and then figuring out ways in which to measure that. Sociologists would like that to measure that and to see what we're doing to help that happen. So we use four words, uh, reach ministries, connect ministries, form ministries, sends ministries, which is kind of our flywheel, our our disciple-making flywheel. So uh, high degree of experimentation. Um, We're seeing some pretty cool results, though. Hey, hey, would you all
0: thank our panelists today? Thank you so much.